Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Real Film Chronicles podcast, episode three. Um, as always, I'm Nathan. And I'm Brian. And we're here today to go over the film Greenland, which came out recently on Amazon Prime. And it came out in theaters in pretty limited countries and uh, theater counts last July, I think, of July 2020. Oh, did it? it? Like I saw, it was probably Wikipedia I was reading this on. It came out in, like, Belgium, for instance. Uh, in some of the more safe countries, I guess, it did get a limited theatrical release. Uh, and then it hit Amazon Prime and some of the other video-on-demand services at the end of 2020. Hit with the strength of a comet. Right. The, I, like, this movie came out of nowhere for me, to be honest with you. I had no idea what was going on. I, I didn't see any advertising around it, which is probably... You know, status quo for the uh, 2020 pandemic. Yeah, obviously, I had no idea it actually hit theaters anywhere. I thought it was a, one of the kind of... Is it an Amazon original then? Or is it picked up by Amazon? That I couldn't tell you. I'm really not sure. It could go either way. Yeah, we should probably do some research on that. Um, but I did see ads for it pop up, I think, on, on YouTube. Yes. Um, before a bunch of videos. But it wasn't... Like you said, it wasn't a huge movie on my radar or anything like that, especially in 2020. I only heard about it really a couple months ago. I think starting in January or something, it started to pop up as ads. 100%. And to be honest with you, disaster movies aren't generally on my radar either, right? Well, it's a genre that really kind of saw its heyday, I think, back in the 90s, and maybe it faded out around the early 2000s. Well, really, yeah. I guess going back, I think the 70s, it was a huge, huge yes. influx of disaster movies. You think about stuff like, obviously, Towering Inferno, um, Airport, and then all the sequels, and then... Yeah, Poseidon Adventure. Poseidon Adventure and all the sequels, which was kind of cool. I was just thinking about this, actually. Um, Poseidon Adventure and then Poseidon Adventure 2, which was really like a sidequel and not a sequel. Because it was taking the events were taking place concurrently with the events of oh, the first really? film. Yeah, if you've never seen it, it's kind of neat to, to check it out and, and go back on this. Because the first one, Poseidon Adventure, is a giant wave capsizes this luxury cruiser and there's a group of passengers trying to escape and then the second yeah. one starts off it's this crew of salvagers and they come across the wreck of the ship and they're like i don't know if it's real maritime law or like movie maritime law but it's like oh like <laughs> like scavenger rights and so they're like they send this crew and it's yeah, like we're yeah. gonna scavenge some parts to to sell later on but i think they come across <laughs> some people and they try to help them out but it's like it's happening concurrently it's a really interesting concept that um It'd be like today, people would be like, "Whoa, it's a side cool. It's happening at the same time." But back then, it was just like this is just an idea to make some more money off this yeah. movie that did well at one point. All those '70s disaster films are are a definite blind spot in my film history. Although I think the Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure specifically, I've seen bits and pieces of it on television over the years, sort of piece it together. Uh, but definitely some some quality films to go back and check out sometime. In the 80s, we didn't really get a lot of disaster films, I don't think, and really came about in the 90s. What do you think uh, got it going in the 90s there? Um, well, I mean, if you look at typical analyses of these kind of things and these kind of trends, it usually has to do with um, real-world social, political mm. instabilities and issues and anxieties at the time. But if you look at, specifically, you look at, like, Cold War-era stuff with... Um, obviously Doctor Strange and like end of the world, like kind of nuclear fears and that yep. kind of thing. Um, but then in the nineties we had, uh, I think there was a partially, it was a sci-fi kind of revival where you had stuff like independence day, where it was like mm -hmm. alien invasions, which obviously has influence from the fifties and all the kind of alien invasion movies at that time. Um, yeah. Obviously there's, you can, there's literally like hundreds and thousands. You can get those box sets of like, you know all the all the B, <laughs> the B movie sci-fi movies back in the day. Like Alien Invasion was a huge thing, and then of course as we kind of as our technology expanded and we were looking out into space and this idea of some kind of astral body hitting us or kind of cosmic body or cosmic debris like asteroids or meteors mm -hmm. or comets hitting us. And you had obviously the two main ones I'm thinking of growing up with were Armageddon and Deep Impact. Um, yes. Armageddon, I think, obviously the bigger one with Michael Bay, but I think Deep Impact, probably arguably the 
the better movie? I know you would argue that, Brian. Uh, Deep Impact and Armageddon, that is definitely a worthy uh, conversation and pretty wildly different now when I go back on it. But having come out like pretty, like in the same release window, I guess, in the I'm assuming it's the same year those two movies came out. Uh-huh. Really hit. I mean, we're both in high school. These are movies you're going to go out with all your friends to see. They really got the disaster movie uh, motivation going there. I have no, I don't have a proper word for it there. But I was thinking Independence Day, for me, was kind of the introduction of disaster films into into my movie going habits yeah speaking of kind of movie doubles then you also had uh dante's peak and was it volcano volcano also come out around the same time i would argue that uh, dante's peak was the better film but uh both, yeah without a question yeah but the idea the idea of natural disasters that's pretty much that's been a common anxiety um since the beginning of time i think for for human beings yeah I mean, you look at, I think there was, what was it called? Pompeii? Mm-hmm. Was that was that starring, was it Kit Harrington in there? Or was that somebody else I'm thinking of? No, that's exactly it. Okay. I haven't actually seen the movie, but that was another, obviously, volcano-related natural disaster flick. Yeah. Um, from what, you don't need to see that movie, by the way. You're fine. That's kind of, from the <laughs> reviews, I was not um, rushing to see it, which is why it's still on my list. Um, also, obviously, another one, awesome one from the 90s, Twister. Yes, that was great. Which is like, whether you classify that as maybe a hybrid of disaster slash action adventure, maybe, but it's it's about natural forces wreaking havoc on human civilization. So I think that would qualify. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, there was definitely two uh, diverging things there. You have the sort of the sci-fi disaster alien invasion, which I was probably more involved in, but the late 90s with the natural disasters, we hit everything, culminating in what, the perfect storm in the year 2000? The end out the uh, the decade. Perfect storm. The core was early two thousands, right? The core. Now is that the one where the the Earth's core literally stops? Yeah, and they uh, have rotating to, or something. They have to take their like land submarine down yes. down to the core. You know like... what? I've seen that movie once, and it. I don't know. I, I think I got wrapped up the advertising of that of how absolutely ridiculous it was. The core came out in two thousand three. And I wouldn't be surprised if that is where we sort of reach uh, the beginning of the super disaster, like the supernatural disasters, not ghostly disasters. But uh, before then, natural disasters were fairly localized, like Twister. When you're talking about a stretch of yeah. land with a with a couple tornadoes, uh, even something sci-fi disaster like Independence Day, you're talking about specific cities all over the world, and they sort of branch out from there. But the core amped it up to the global level. And I think we saw a lot of that, and that's where I really got fatigued with it, and probably culminated in the movie 2012, which I believe came out in 2009. Yeah, there's 2012, which was not as bad as I'd been led to believe. Not not a great film. Um, amazing visuals. I think that was Roland Emmerich as well, right? 2012, because he was, he was all about... So. The disaster movies for a while because he did Independence Day and then it was The Day After Tomorrow, which is another, it was yeah. another like solid movie, but didn't reach the heights of Independence Day for me. Maybe it's partially nostalgia because Independence Day just came out at that time. I was a kid and it was readily yeah. available and we probably watched that movie, you know, dozens or hundreds of times. Exactly. It was one of those, one of those movies you just watched over and over again. You wore out the tape, right? No, I do remember the day after tomorrow revisiting that movie a few times. It was, it was pretty decent. I think it had some good characters and it was interesting and different enough from the normal disaster movies we were watching. And there was, was good because, you know, it's only half the planet sort of that gets, you know, if that's in danger, everyone's got to move down south towards the equator to to avoid this disaster, where something like the core, the planet stops twist, uh, t- sorry, not twisting, <laughs> uh, the planet stops turning, and, you know, that's the end of the planet. And 2012, I, all right, I, I watched 2012 for the first time about a month or two ago, and I was not looking forward to it. I've kind of felt like it was just going to be way too over the top and it wasn't super awful, but it definitely represented everything that is cliche about disaster films and super destruction, all this stuff. It just, it wasn't great, but it wasn't super bad either. And at the very least, it was full of crazy special effects of ridiculous disaster. Yeah, I think a lot of the the genre really went to an over the top 
kind of place. But I think there were there were some good movies in there. Like I was just thinking about Deepwater Horizon. Okay. Yeah, that would be a great example of a nice yeah. kind of localized but very significant and relevant disaster film. Yeah, and it was one of those. It was a man-made disaster. I I really love that movie, um, specifically because there was obviously there was a lot of like corporate kind of capitalistic malfeasance, mm-hmm. um, but there was no real bad guy. I wasn't trying to villainize anybody, and I yeah. think it did a good job. I think at the end of the movie, it actually went through and you know paid its respects to the actual characters or the actual people that the characters were based on actually That's right. actually went through and, and showed them all. It was, it was done in a really, really tasteful way. Um, same with the movie called Everest, which oh, yes. I saw recently, which was a lot better than I was expecting, which chronicled the ill-fated again, true story um, adventure of, um, of a group of people who went to climb Mount Everest and several of them either died or were, um, severely disfigured mm-hmm. from from frostbite and, and gangrene. That was uh, that was a solid solid film, and I, I think you you sort of hit the nail on the head there. Over the past ten years, we've seen a lot more personal personal stories in disaster films instead of the over the top, uh, like almost comic disaster. Well, I think that's really what made Geost not Geostorm. Geostorm is another good one. <laughs> the reason I'm thinking of Geostorm is specifically was Geostorm because. Good? I haven't seen it yet, but it's also starred Gerard Butler. Yes. Right. I have not seen Geostorm yet. It's on my list. I'm going to have to go check it out. But I think the reason that Greenland, um, for me, really landed so well. And, and for me, I really enjoyed the film. was specifically because it went back and it grounded the story in the perspective of these characters that you could identify with. Which we really mm-hmm. think about the movies we've been talking about. Something like Independence Day or even Armageddon, which I like the movie, but it's not a cinematic masterpiece. But you can follow along with Armageddon and Independence Day and Deep Impact because it's this these big, like in, in some cases, world-altering disasters are being shown from the point of view of the people on the ground and how it's affecting mm-hmm. their personal relationships and their personal lives and showing the personal struggles to, to survive in these circumstances. And those ones, all from the 90s, they're really exemplify that that character-driven disaster film where I think you kind of lose a bit of that going later on. Mm-hmm. I'm just, you got the core and 2012 on my mind here and 2012, especially where the characters are more caricatures of normal people. They're not necessarily behaving normally and the situations they're in are just way too unrealistic where something like Armageddon, you know, a group of miners going up into space sounds ridiculous, but these guys can sell it because they are actual interesting characters with some good backstory and and relatability. Right. For Armageddon, you have that willing suspension of disbelief. Completely ridiculous plot, as as Ben Affleck hilariously points out in the yeah. in the commentary tracks. <laughs> but it's a because these characters are all given the time to interact with each other, and you see that these are people. Um, they're not not in-depth characters like other movies but they're given enough backstory that you can actually care about these people and when like mm-hmm. bruce willis takes ben affleck's place to blow up the nuke and you got <laughs> you feel you feel the tears welling up <laughs> yeah no, it's it, a really emotional roller coaster those ones <laughs> <laughs> but yeah or even stuff like twister right twister had it was less about like there was a whole plot of them trying to figure out a new way to have an early detection system um, but really, it was about obviously the relationship between um, you know the late great Bill Paxton's character and Helen Hunt's character, but also all the side characters. Like you look at um, Dusty, um, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now. He also Philip Seymour Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who also sadly uh, passed away far too soon. But like that Dusty character, it's like it was, you were given just enough, but you cared about these people, right? Like you saw how the disaster affected these people on a personal level, on an emotional level, mm-hmm. and so. And that was what kept you invested, not just giant and, dare I say, awesome special effects. But like you're saying, 2012, that movie, the characters, the one-dimensional characters take a backseat, not even to the plot, but just to the special effects and the explosions and and all the wild stuff going on screen. Yeah, it's pretty fair to to say that disaster movies are are probably born out of box office uh, motivations. They are popcorn films right from the beginning. They're meant to be 
experienced on the big screen. Well, you're all, all the way back to the 70s, the Poseidon Adventure, where you have these gigantic sets being turned around mm-hmm. and whatnot. Like, these are spectacle films. Later on, we just basically lose the the human connection there in something like 2012, where it, it's literally just two and a half hours of, of CGI simulations of, of building destruction and and water physics and and whatnot. You sort of, you're watching that stuff, you kind of forget that there's people involved, which is kind of unfortunate where I'm thinking of Twister where we're watching a CGI Twister through here. It's going through someone's house, but we have enough uh, human connection here to, to worry about the people inside. Absolutely. You contrast something like 2012 or the day after tomorrow with, you know, something like one we haven't mentioned yet, which is Apollo 13. Maybe yeah. even... I would I would put it up there with with either the best or one of certainly one of the best disaster movies ever made um, by the still living uh, and great Ron Howard. Yep. The thing that really tied that together wasn't the special effects. You know, it wasn't the big explosions. It it was the it was the people and the plight of the people in that situation yeah. and their relationships and that emotional struggle and how they dealt with it. Right. The special effects drive the plot and support the characters exactly instead of being the main draw for for the film. Which I think you're right. A lot of the modern disaster flicks, partially as a result of the over reliance uh, on CGI, is like he. It's it's like a showcase. It's like a special effects showcase. It's like they're putting together yeah. a sizzle reel to say like, look at look how big we can make this explosion. Look at look at how we can make this tectonic plate crack. Yep. We're yeah, super exactly. realistically with awesome physics. Well, what about the characters and the plot? It's like, yeah, sure, whatever. I think the uh, the CGI aspect uh, really opened up the door for these usual disaster elements to invade our other films. And I'm just thinking back, maybe this is a bit uh, oblique, but you have something like Man of Steel or uh, Star Trek What's the second one? Into Darkness? Into Darkness, yep. Where one of the ships is basically crashing into the city of San Francisco and absolutely leveling the city. And it's just full like it's just full of glory shots of the buildings collapsing. It's just like what what are we watching out of out of a Star Trek film at this point that the climax is is like this. Well, I think you're hitting on a very interesting point because I was talking before about how social um and political situations influence our cultural texts like films mm-hmm. and like that image you're talking about is very very like it's tied to like the post 9-11 right very very post 9-11 yeah. Im- style imagery where you have like a spaceship crashing the buildings is an obvious analog for airplanes crashing the buildings yeah. and those kind of things so like that imagery of like or like even in man of steel when you have those two people crash into that building and this building starts collapsing. It's very, very, um, considering that it was made in the United States, you get that very, very post 9-11 kind of imagery. So it, mm-hmm. it, it all ties back to that idea of reflecting um, the, the anxieties of the time, right? Same as yeah. you look at um, one one genre that you could probably tie into the to disaster flicks is, is the whole zombie genre. 100%. I yeah. mean, you look at essentially like the post-apocalyptic but the thing is about zombies, it's not post-apocalyptic per se. Usually it's like mid-apocalyptic, mid-apocalyptic mm-hmm. you could say. We look at uh, the classic ones by George A. Romero where it's just like, it's just a disaster or apocalypse like in motion. And you're you're yeah. there as it's happening. And then you see uh, all these anxieties back in the day of you know communism and the red threat. Um, I think there mm-hmm. were obviously themes of, of racism, which while still relevant today, obviously, I mean, back in, you look at the sixties and that time of social change. So you can really see that how those, how the art that we produce and the society and the culture at the time really are in dialogue with each other in, in, in what we could, would consider like a, you know, just a, a popcorn action summer flick, but they're actually, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a deeper connection to the, the zeitgeist of, of the time. Right. I, I think you, well, you've t- touched on a lot of good topics there. I'm just thinking, uh, classifying you know zombie and supernatural films as disaster films because they are absolute disasters, right? And obviously very popular in the past couple decades here. Uh, I think the Walking Dead TV series is still going on, uh, just to show <laughs> it just keeps going and going. But we have a lot of horror movies that are like that, and a lot of um, the religious angle as well. Uh, what I think are classified as end of days movies yeah you look at 
literally the left behind movie was inspired by a series of um christian novels talking about the the end of days and specifically an event called the rapture where all of god's chosen people are magically disappeared and sent straight to heaven and the rest of the people are left to kind of struggle and figure out where they belong good and evil now did you see the nicholas cage 2014 left behind film i have not it's on my list. No, I think I was going through Nicolas Cage films and I watched recently. I watched Knowing and uh, Next. Knowing is a great example of the end of days. Again. The scenario. Absolutely. Knowing was a kind of a, not kind of, it was a disaster movie. It was literally like the world was yeah. was coming to an end. I've always been fascinated with the, the left behind, the, the rapture the storyline where literally people are taken away. They just disappear and uh, if you haven't seen it, I would definitely check out uh, the Leftovers TV series, where I believe it wasn't, it was either half or two thirds of people on the planet just like vanish. And it's two or three seasons of dealing with grief and loss on a, on a really nice uh, emotional uh, story there. It was really good. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Um, I'm kind of on the fence about uh, Damon Lindelof right now, so... Mm-hmm. I know I was letting some of my biases kind of turn me off, but from everything I've heard, it's a great show, um, and I'll have to I'll have to check it out sometime. Yeah, I mean, literally, also um, "End of Days" I think is the title of a Schwarzenegger that Schwarzenegger film. Yes. I still I'm I'm gonna get in trouble for this probably from from Brian here, but I still haven't seen "End of Days" yet. You know what? You're forgiven because I watched that when it came out. And I couldn't tell you anything about the film. I just think, I think at that time it was kind of the downward slope of the first chapter of Arnold Schwarzenegger's career. Yeah. Where he was like this, this action titan, really, action icon, but this, he was the, one of the action gods, action movie gods from the 80s and the 90s. And I think the early 2000s kind of petered out a bit before he went into politics. And then he got back into movies and he started making there was obviously action movies he obviously started in those terminator sequels uh-huh. well the great thing about arnold's return to cinema is that he came back and played his range and he's playing in smaller movies i think it was was it uh, i'm probably botching the name here last man where he's playing a sheriff in a town the last stand the Last Stand, yeah, thank yeah. you. Which is good action, and he's playing somebody that he should be playing. And keeping with a disaster theme here, we've got a movie like Maggie, which is kind of in that mid, uh, mid-disaster, mid mid-apocalypse kind of zombie film uh, genre as well. And he's playing a character that he is in his range, and it ends up being a really good film. Well, I was going to say before you so rudely interrupted, that oh, in addition to the mindless kind of action that he was doing, he was also I think in the second phase of his career here, he was also exploring um, some more character-driven stuff like Maggie, mm-hmm. which if you haven't seen Maggie, it's a um, disaster movie, zombie movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger. For anybody who argues that Arnold Schwarzenegger can't act, I would point them to Maggie. Just like if anybody argued that Sylvester Stallone can't act, I would point them either to the first Rocky, which is which yeah. was amazing acting there. For sure. And then um, Copland, if you haven't seen it, amazing performance by Sly Stallone. We're getting a bit off the rails, but like I know that Schwarzenegger and Stallone, obviously, they're criticized a lot for their inability to actually act, but these guys can act. They've been in the business long. They can they can yeah. emote. They can act. Actually, they have a range of acting capabilities that I don't think people give them oh, credit for. Oh, for sure. Well, I think they almost get typecast, or they basically become a a product of the movies that they're in. And you're talking about the late 80s, early 90s. Acting didn't matter in action films. That's not what their purpose was, right? And I think those guys, because they were good action stars, they could do it, and they didn't need to act. Nobody asked them to act in those films, really. And now we've sort of moved beyond a lot of that stuff. And you you mentioned sort of the decline in the Schwarzenegger films, End of Days. You could probably say The Sixth Day as well. Uh, I'm probably missing a couple other like ones the, there. They, the Eraser was not super great. Yeah, stuff like that. And I think that was more not necessarily a reflection on Schwarzenegger films or him as an actor or a character. It's a changing of the action film genre in the industry, in our world. Those late um, or early 2000s Schwarzenegger films, they really felt like almost imitations of the early... Um, yeah. 80s, 80s to 90s action films, right? Where you had like 
they were they looked at the tropes and they looked at oh these these are the ingredients you put in to make a great action film without actually thinking about how to yeah. combine those ingredients properly and you know like cook and like throw it in the oven and cook it at 375 they didn't it was underbaked or overbaked <laughs> or whatever cooking analogy you want it, it wasn't it was an imitation rather than the real thing it came out a disaster in the end and by some strange extension they are their own disaster films <laughs> nice segue or summation i guess yeah so obviously in the past couple of years there's been a few disaster films uh, i've checked out geostorm san andreas with the rock that's the one I was trying to think of. And now we have Gerard Butler is almost our face for these disaster films, maybe just because of Geostorm, perhaps a couple of other films in there somewhere I'm not thinking of. Gerard Butler has been doing, I think he's one of those actors that kind of, he's gotten to a place in his career where he just feels comfortable like taking the roles that he wants to take and he doesn't really yeah. care what people think. Like he's, he reminds me in that way a lot of, of uh, Matthew McConaughey. Or Matthew McConaughey for a while in his career there, where he was doing like mostly the chick flicks and the romantic comedies, right? And people were like, "Ah, oh, like these are all you are all these terrible movies." And it's like, mm. I get paid really well. I get to I get to hang out in great locations around the world with people I like. Yeah, and it's tons of fun. And he'd already like Matthew McConaughey was weird because he went through this phase where early in his career he was doing like quote unquote serious acting mm -hmm. and then he went through that phase where he was doing mostly rom-coms which in the industry and the society at large is is looked at as a lesser genre um and then he then we had like the reconnaissance where he became this um <laughs> you know highly acclaimed actor who was taking on all these interesting roles and it just feels yeah. like he consciously made these just decisions like he got comfortable enough he got made enough money on these rom-coms got comfortable enough and he's like well i'm gonna now i can take these risks and do these other challenging movies and it feels kind of like yeah. that for gerard butler's way as well even though i think people don't tend to look at gerard butler as a great actor for for whatever reason but he started off like obviously with 300 and with some other action movies got into this um mid-career phase of doing a bunch of rom-coms and and he seems to be really hitting on um, sort of your more run of the mill. I don't I don't know how to describe it. Uh, sort of your mediocre action films, and I'm probably being unfair in saying this, but he was in the Olympus Has Fallen, and then there was London Has Fallen, and I think there's a third one or even a fourth one. I personally haven't seen any of them, but that really ramped him up to become a fairly modern action star. For like these are neat consumable films that uh, he doesn't have to be fantastic, but he, he's given it his all in it anyways. I think that was almost kind of part of um, Gerard Butler's kind of renaissance where he kind of came back from doing all the rom-coms and came back and essentially established himself as one of the modern um, action action stars now where he, he, like you said he's doing the Olympus has fallen series and then he was he did a bunch of stuff like machine gun preacher um things like law-abiding citizen which i think at the time wasn't well received but now you look online it's got a, a, a fairly huge cult following i think people um uh, really respected that after like upon further reflection i think what was the one was it called gamer where he was like a yes character <laughs> which was not I, I haven't seen it yet um i've heard the reviews were not quite that welcoming but i think he was also in stuff like um i, I need to shout out like rock and roller yes yeah. um all around amazing guy Ritchie film but uh, gerard butler was in that but in this one specifically in greenland um gerard butler shows why he is a movie star and why he yeah. is still um getting getting roles and why he's still in the forefront of our minds and our conversation this guy despite what some people online say this guy can act he's i've always liked him and maybe I'm, I'm biased because he's in some a couple of films I really, really enjoy. Like 300 is one of my all-time favorite films. But like I've always really enjoyed Gerard Butler's work. I, whenever I mm -hmm. see him in a movie, that's always a plus for me. I was like, I want to see this movie because this dude's in it. And Greenland really is a perfect vehicle for Gerard Butler. This was a surprisingly good film. I went in with low expectations. As did I. Yeah, it was, it's, it was pretty rough. I mean, so this is Greenland falls into the disaster category obviously easily but it also touches on natural disasters and the end of days genre that we were talking about where a comet is passing by earth it's going to be very very close to earth and chunks of the comet are going to come off uh, scientists are 
telling people that some of the chunks are going to hit the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, things are going to be okay. And that's kind of where our film picks up is Gerard Butler is playing um, uh, John Garrity. So he's a civil engineer, I guess, working in the construction industry. He's attempting to get back together with his wife. And one of the things I like about this film is it doesn't fall into the same trope as, you know, a separated couple who come back together because of the disaster. It starts off with them coming back together. They are already working on a plan, like he's moving back in to his wife's home. Yeah, his wife is played by, I'm probably going to butcher this name, Marina Baccarin. I always mess it up too. Yeah. They, they both do an awesome job, and they have a son. I don't re- know who the actor is. His name is Nathan, though. Yeah, that's the other thing, too, is it's always uh, interesting when you have a character in a movie that shares your name, especially in this one where they're constantly yelling yeah. it out. They're like, Nathan! <laughs> it's like, I don't know if this happens to people whose names are in movies more often, more common names, but uh, it was interesting, yeah. <laughs> so basically the film has Gerard Butler moving back in with his wife, and in the background, there's lots of little news bits, and the story basically plays out in newscasts. Like the in the background at first is that this comet is coming, the his kid is excited, and probably what in the first ten fifteen minutes, you know the emergency alert goes off on everyone's phone. Uh, this comet is gonna not hit the ocean like it was planned to, and at that point, Gerard Butler's character receives a phone call like an automated phone call from the the U.S. government saying that him and his family have been chosen to basically bunker down. They are literally going to head to Greenland where they built these underground bunkers. I don't know if it's a lottery system that was going on, but most likely he was chosen because of his civil engineering background as someone who would be able to help post-apocalypse in rebuilding their society. And that's basically where their film really starts rolling. Yeah, I believe that it was. it's implied that essentially they were, like you said, they were essentially grabbing people who were going to be useful post, post-apocalypse to rebuild society. So as a civil engineer, obviously, helping to build mm-hmm. buildings. But we're assuming that there's going to be doctors and other other people like that. Um, yeah. I think I think one person specifically that he meets later on, his mother was a doctor and she got the call. Mm-hmm. So I think the implication is that essentially the government just decided it's like, they did their analysis, like, we're going to need this many architects. We're going to need this many doctors. We're going to need this many electricians. We're going to need yeah. the, the, this many nuclear physicists. And they was like, and, and then selected what they guess they thought were the best ones. Yeah. But one thing the government did not want are people with sicknesses or disabilities. Because they, essentially, the, the family gets to the, the, like, the cargo plane on the, on the military base. And... They catch wind that his son is diabetic and will require medication. They basically just turn him away right there. It's like, we are not going to be dealing with this for however long we're going to be bunkered up for. Well, what I liked about Greenland, or one of the things I liked about Greenland, was that it presented these um, very difficult moral choices without preaching at us. Like mm-hmm. when Gerard Butler and Marina Bakker and, and like their family are driving off, um, other fam- other families, because they were having a barbecue at the time, so other families in the neighborhood knew that they got c- the call to go to this airport yeah. to get loaded on the plane, and nobody else got the call, and they're like, they're freaking out. And one yeah. person runs out and is like, take my daughter with you. Take my daughter mm-hmm. with you. Please save her. And they're like, literally, we and they're torn, right? Like, do we try and save this kid? And Gerard yeah. Butler's character, what was his name again? John? J- John. Yeah, yeah Gerard, Gerard Butler's character, John, um, he's obviously torn, but he's like, we can't take her with us. They're not going to let her through. And it's yeah. better for her to spend her last time that she has with her family. Mm-hmm. If it's going to be her last time. And, and obviously that's, it's a very difficult decision. But then again, you look at, you look at things from on a, a higher level from the government standpoint, and it's a matter of resource management, right? Where it's like, yeah. we can't take people. Unfortunately, if you have like cancer or if you have severe asthma, which the kid had, um, if you have these severe chronic conditions where we're just not going to have the resources and infrastructure in place to be able to support you. Like we have to think long-term su- survival on, on the level of a species as opposed mm-hmm. to the level of individuals. And obviously there there's cases to be made for both on both sides of that argument, 
but the the movie presents it to us but it doesn't like moralize it doesn't preach to us yeah which is really nice uh, the perspective of the film is always from the garrity family and there are no scenes that were transported to the president's office or anything we're not getting into the the decision making process from any government officials it's all from their perspective right and i think that makes a very grounded film and hints at those bigger moral moral dilemmas but doesn't um doesn't throw it in your face well even like the military people working at these bases where they're gathering up these people to transport them off to the secret bunker um at one point marina brockeran's character is pleading with these military people please you know let my son on the plane with us let us go mm-hmm. and the military person explains to her is like you know we're doing all this stuff but like most of the people here 99 yeah. people here we're not chosen either like we're we're, That's we're doing it's this grim. and we're trying to we're trying to work within the structure but we're gonna die here too just so you're aware yeah. and she doesn't she doesn't come off like angry at this lady but she's just like kind of trying to contextualize things for and, and like put things in perspective like you're not the only one here like everybody here is trying mm-hmm. to do a job so that our species survives but like most people here are, are sacrificing their lives to try and help all these other people and, and unfortunately right. they have to balance out those greater needs versus the needs of the indi- individual the needs of the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one <laughs> spock was right again definitely that, that whole setup was it was really fantastic but yeah it was it was smart of them to ground it in that kind of family drama which drives it at one point the family gets separated um the mom and the and the child get separated from from john and they they know that they have they're gonna go and meet up at north at her father's place, so that's yeah they they they're leaving notes around because all the obviously with all the um you know cosmic interference cell phones are not working the best they work yeah. they work sporadically as the plot needs them to well so I it was at probably this point in the film that I thought maybe things are still a little ridiculous like my expectations were still low where they are about to board the plane the the met the his kids meds fall out of a bag in the car so the meds are in the car at this point uh Gerard butler realizes this says okay wait 15 minutes i'm gonna run back to the car i'm gonna give these medications and that basically gets you know the government uh, the military officials overhearing that oh this kid requires medications we have to send it back so they become separated at that, at that point Gerard butler goes back to the military base while his wife and child have been evicted off already and is almost he's on a plane you know he, he could be absolutely safe gets off the plane to go see his family again and it basically becomes uh it's the two of them it's the three of them trying to get back together and navigating all the insanity that a a world is that knows where a, a bunch of people know that they are going to die soon it's it's pretty grim yeah so they're trying to navigate through all that chaos and um obviously the the conflict that comes with some people being selected for survival and mm-hmm. some people not which is represented through they have a specific bracelet, wristband the wristband they put on that you usually use to get into bars or raves um, yes. this one gets <laughs> this one gets you the secret bunker that will save you from, from the end of the world but that happens on for for gerard butler's character he somehow ends up on this transport with a bunch of other people obviously the imagery is um, very evocative of you know the u.s mexico border of of mm-hmm. immigrants and refugees coming across the border and there's a there's a great scene there um, also obviously topical where somebody calls out gerard butler speaking with his scottish accents yeah unapologetically this time that's right it's great please do more of that thanks yeah and somebody calls him out it's like oh where were you born and just this subtle thing about the whole uh, just touching on the racial tensions at the time at Mm -hmm. our time here in in history um without going again without moralizing without uh, preaching to us but just like it was built into the plot where this guy is like see this other person that's being transported sees the wristband is like dude i'm taking that wristband i'm gonna be safe and they get into this big fight and and the great thing about the fight is that Gerard Butler is not some crazy action hero. He's he's an architect. Yeah. He's a civil civil engineer, and they get in this really messy fight that causes this this 
truck, his van, to crash. It's this messy fight where they're on the ground rolling around. They're disoriented from the crash, and they're and they're reaching for a hammer to try and get the upper hand, and he accidentally kills somebody. And even in this life-and-death struggle, he's absolutely mm-hmm. horrified that he accidentally yeah. killed this person who was attacking him, who certainly would have killed him, right? Yeah. So again, there's like really emotional scene and having to deal with you know life and death survival situation where it's it's you know literally kill or be killed but then the emotional toll that takes of even though you're killing in self-defense you're still killing and you're still to deal with the emotional weight of that as a regular human being it was a, it was a pretty powerful scene yeah honestly uh, and those wristbands put giant targets on the family um i think they it, does the child lose his wristband at one point or no what what happens is that the mother and the child they get they think they're getting a friendly ride to go up north yes but then they steal the mother's wristband and kick her out and keep the child with them that scene was gut-wrenching to watch that one was really difficult because there this poor woman is being overpowered by this this man and his wife uh, the wife is just not doing anything she kind of knows that this is their ticket, but she knows that this is really not the right thing to do. And so the the husband is basically forcing Marina out of the car on the side of the highway and driving off with their child. It was really hard. It was at that point where I'm thinking, man, this movie, this movie is serious. And are can they realistically, all three of them, meet up again? I really wasn't sure what was going to happen for the rest of that film. Oh, they really raised the stakes there. On the one hand, that scene reminded me kind of of Nocturnal Animals, where there's a scene mm, yeah. on the highway which just like slowly escalates, where a man is being separated from his family. A yep. Different context, but same kind of vibe. But also, in terms of those people who did that to them, you kind of get the sense that they weren't. The movie wasn't trying to turn them into villains. It was just regular people, yeah, put in extraordinary circumstances and trying to do and trying to weigh out these different moral issues about what they should do to survive. And they're like, we're going to take care of your kid as, as a way to kind of justify what they're doing to her. Yeah. Thankfully, in the, mov- in the movie universe, that kind of karma works out where those two people don't actually get on any planes. They're found out yeah. immediately because the kid finds the courage to speak out and scream out, these aren't my parents. This is a, a brilliant uh, showcase of Greenland stepping above the other disaster films it is in its portrayal of of this child and not doing dumb things all the characters act pretty smartly i i think that i had some issues at the very beginning uh and how they got separated but i'm fine with it but here we have this tense situation where they're trying to get onto the plane and the kid just basically yells out these aren't my parents and essentially saves himself the we got a sympathetic military officer who is not going to let this kid be by himself. It's it's really, it's good. Yeah. The child is not a hindrance to them. Yeah, well, the whole thing is like, they're going to get caught anyway because they have, there's three people and two wristbands. Yeah. So like their whole plan is, is is really born. You can see it's, these are really desperate people, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you see the, fir- the first airport, the first military base is actually at one point overrun. Like the, just the, there's mobs of people around because they know it's like, oh, they saw, they saw these cars driving up there for all the selected people. And so all the, the non-selected people go up there and eventually yeah. they overrun it and it causes a big explosions and whatnot because this is a Hollywood movie. There's obviously um, some, there's a flame and there's a, a, a fuel truck. So obviously yeah. insanity ensues. <laughs> One of the planes literally blows up like it's killing hunters. There are some good special effects of this film, even though there's all this drama happening. But I do like that nobody really knows how the wristband system works. They know they have a wristband. People know that gets them on the planes, but you still have to verify who you are, right? And if you don't have a wristband, you just straight up, you can't talk your way into this situation. And it ends up being this couple's uh, downfall. And a shout out to the, the, the husband who sort of kidnaps uh, the, the Gerard's son as was uh, David Denham. Yes. Uh, Roy from The Office, who yeah. invariably shows up in films and ends up being the villain. <laughs> <laughs> for, for whatever reason, whatever lot he's 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 received, that's that's what he's doing. But I love that he just shows up and he's playing this role. And he's like, he's one of the, I think he's a very kind of gracious actor where it's like, he's not drawing mm-hmm. attention to the fact that he's like a big name actor. It's yeah. like, it was really great to have him in there and not be kind of drawn out of the film, right? Because he was doing such a great job. No, it was it was really nice. Yeah, so eventually the, everyone gets reunited at um, at her father's place, where mm-hmm. they, again they have this kind of heartfelt goodbye with um, 
I can't remember the actor's name, but he played Stick in the Daredevil st- series. <laughs> I want to call him Scott. Scott something, but Scott Glenn. Yeah. So her father played by played by Scott Glenn, aka Stick from the Daredevil series. <laughs> um, and obviously, there's unresolved tensions there um, coming from their separation, which is revealed mm. was due to Gerard Butler having an affair with another woman, and so the, the father-in-law is understandably protective of his daughter, and so there's tension there. But then when they when it comes time to leave, the father or father-in-law decides to stay behind because they they figure out eventually that there's the secret base is in Greenland, which not everybody knew because mm-hmm. it wouldn't do much good if everybody knew where it was and then they just started yeah. to pile on there. But that there were specifically out of Canada, go Canada, there was an airport up there and they were there were some private flights and they were. They were specifically chartering over to Greenland to try and get in that base yeah. um, without the wristband, taking one last shot. So that's where they're headed. But the father-in-law is like, no, I'm going to, I was born here. I'm going to die here. Yeah. One, of the, one of those kind of situations, which kind of felt a little bit tropey, but also kind of, uh, yeah. it also kind of made sense in the context of the movie and the context of the characters where he was kind of more down to earth and kind of grounded yeah. and rooted this place. And he was older and he'd lived his life and he was coming at things from a different perspective. But then there's a really mm-hmm. emotional scene where the daughter and father saying goodbye for what they understand to be the last time. And it's not like overdone. Yeah. It's not this big emotional thing where the music's blaring in the background. It's really kind of simple and they're restrained and like, they know what's going on, but they, and they, and they're saying goodbye but it's not over the top, you know, award season kind of nonsense. And this whole scene where they they all meet up together and there are some quiet moments where they're sort of getting a little bit of news on what's going on in the world. Uh, the writing is on the wall at this point. They know nobody's going to survive out here. I don't, I didn't know how long this movie was. When this whole scene plays out, we're 90 minutes in. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a pretty appropriate time. And this movie, it ramped it up with some high stakes drama and I think it might just end right here where the family is now together and we're going to see them go out in peace. And I was instantly reminded of Lars von Trier's melancholia. Right. And I'm thinking, Oh wow. I can't believe they're stepping into this kind of territory. Well, it's it's also similar to knowing. Yes. A hundred percent. And then they say their goodbyes and they hit the road and there's another half hour of a pretty intense, you know, trying to get onto the plane, trying to beat the clock. And it really, I think at that point, kind of falls into more of your your tropey uh, disaster film uh, escape sequence. Yeah, there was a lot more standard action beats. Um, a couple of things that did happen, though, that really were exploring the characters a bit more was at one point there's almost like a meteor shower coming down. They get stuck in traffic again. Yes. Cars. <laughs> and then a meteor shower starts, and then a bunch of cars kind of go off this path down to uh, um, a covered bridge where they can, they can go for cover. And then Gerard Butler's character, John, um, ends up saving somebody from a, a burning mm-hmm. car, um, burning his own hand in the process, but just showing that everyone else is hiding, and he goes back and rushes in to help this person. Yeah. I think one other person goes over to help as well. But there's little character beats like that that keep it from from being from feeling too stale right even when they yeah. even when they go to get on the plane um literally it's like i think the last plane thing because there's a bunch of like kind of private chartered planes that take maybe like a couple mm-hmm. dozen people right so not huge giant 747s but literally it's like the last plane taking off and they drive their car on the runway to stop it from taking <laughs> off and the pilot comes out and is like dude i'm at capacity and he's like and they're arguing back and forth and obviously the pilot again that moral quandary is like he wants to help them but like if he takes them on the plane even three people on that plane that size can throw off the weight and they might not get yeah. to the de- destination. They eventually do because they're the heroes, obviously. They're the protagonists, yeah. so he lets them on. But there's still that... They, they, they work in that those moral conundrums still, right? And still keep it fairly tense. Like, you're not entirely sure how the situation is going to play out. Maybe they'll find another plane in, in a few minutes sort of thing, right? But they get onto the plane. They, there's a sort of a quiet moment where they're flying towards Greenland. And... I mean, at that point, we're sort of hearing over the radio that was it a nine mile wide chunk of the comet is going to hit Europe and basically wipe it off the planet. And that that is the extinction level event. And there's literally like a clock ticking down in the film to when this is going to happen. They hit Greenland. 
there's more disaster while little chunks of the uh, the comet basically force them into a crash landing. And they basically just squeak into the shelter. And they're in there. Yeah, I think what they call, they call it the planet killer, right? That, planet, yes. Where essentially like a meteor or um, cosmic body that size hitting the Earth was essentially, I think they said it was about the same size as the dinosaur, the one that killed the dinosaurs, right? Yeah. So they know that like, and it was obvious that the governments around the world knew this yeah. Um, for some time, but they were trying to, again, just like in Deep Impact, they were trying to keep society, keep people from going into huge panic. Didn't quite work mm-hmm. out that way. But uh, yeah, I like it. I like it that end scene where like they get to the plane and it runs out of fuel and they do the crash landing and then they get over to the military base and it's just like the military people see them and it's like at that point, it's like wristbands be damned. It's like we see some people out here. It's like everyone. Yeah. Just, if you made it to Greenland, you're coming in. Just get. It was like I like that they didn't turn they didn't turn the military into bad guys again. Which mm-hmm. often happens in these movies, where like military people are doing shady stuff. It's like no, these these soldiers are like even though they had protocols to follow, they looked yeah. at those people and was like, no, this is just a real human moment. It's like they made it all this way. We can't ethically just leave these people out to die yeah. just because they don't have wristbands, and they get them all in there and save their lives. Well, choosing to put the bunkers in Greenland is is really smart. I mean, for the movie and probably uh, strategically as well for a real world situation because it's difficult to get to Greenland. And if you don't know, it's on this isolated, uh, this isolated island. How are you going to get there? Plane, boat, etc. So if the bunkers were somewhere, you know, in Middle America, you're going to have tens of millions of people show up to this thing. Here in Greenland, if you made it this far, come on into the bunker. We'll just make it work. Oh yeah, the the military is still accepting, like still helping people out. They are feet away from being saved, but you know military people are still out there, and they're going to die in a few moments. But they're doing everything they can to save whoever showed up. Yeah, another another great example of how Greenland really focuses on the disaster from like a human level and puts it into a human context. But it was it was still like I was watching this, and I was there were a couple sequences like that where I was like I, my palms were sweating. You know, I was oh yeah I was getting nervous because like you said, the movie did a good job, even though. As moviegoers now, we're aware of the standard kind of storytelling structures, mm-hmm. but this movie did a great job of not calling attention to it and really kind of keeping audiences on the edge of their seat and not really knowing what was going to happen next. Like you said, Definitely. like there were there could have been a natural ending point where they were at they were together as a family and it's like we're just gonna we're gonna accept our fate and die as a family yeah. and that's that's like that's the victory, the moral victory. Well, that's the victory, right? That's why I really thought Ninety Man's in. They're at the the father's house it's like this could be the end so any time they have afterwards if they die in the plane crash if they die on the runway at least they were together and we know that that was the victory right those were the victory conditions and they would have been happy together i mean we get an even happier ending on top of that because they make it into the bunker and then i think we fast forward nine or ten months they're able to open up the doors and even I'm not sure if this was during the end credits or playing over the credits, but they sort of are able to radio contact out to different settlements all over the world and find that, yeah, there are different bunkers. People have survived this. And there's your uplifting moment for humanity to continue. I I think with those sequences where it was implied, because it was all, I think there was like Russia and, and, and Japan or China, but there was people, there was bunkers, like they were all speaking different languages, but Mm. it, it made sense that, all the world governments probably knew this was incoming and probably made yeah. preparations of their own. That was one thing I didn't quite, I I know why they did that. Uh, I didn't like it as much. I, I, I like that sense of like them coming out of the bunker and they see the birds flying around and that kind of, that, that enough in itself, that kind of visual image was enough to know. It's like, okay, life will go on. Life survived. Yeah. I, I just, I they think could have faded to black. Yeah. I think that the, the, you know, voices the messages from the other bunkers was a little bit overkill for me i didn't quite mm-hmm. dig that as much but it was still it's i think it still worked as it but i think they should like like you said i think they should have cut they come out of the bunker they see the birds flying around and they have those like little survivor smiles on and it's like yes Boom. the survivor smiles <laughs> it's like yeah like looking ho- looking off the horizon hopefully looking towards the future and that would have been enough for the film and they sort of kept going, and that's where I'm sort of looking at it afterwards. By all standards, this is a low-budget film. I think it was 30 or $35 million. Uh, for that amount of money, there, it went far. 
And I feel as though they, obviously unverified, I feel like they must have had less money. They almost had an ending. And with, uh, you know, some preview audiences or something, they're like, all right, here's another $10 million. Go do a little more. And maybe some of this extra ending came out of that. Where it's just like, oh, maybe we'll just react to some audiences wanting a little more positivity out of it. But really, it was kind of unnecessary. Yeah. In fact, I I would have even ended it when they were in the bunker. And then the, the asteroid was actually impacting. And they were feeling the shock yeah. wave, the global shockwave. And they were just huddled together in the dark as a family. I would have been fine if they ended it right after that. Because the family's together, right? Family's together. And we know that they're underground. And there's already that hint that they're going to... like. This is like the seed yeah. for like the a new a new age a new the new age of humanity. We don't need to see. We didn't even need to see the birds flying around. We didn't we didn't need to see them come out from that bunker. We didn't need to hear the messages from yeah. around the world. We did need to see, I think, because it was supposed to impact on mainland Europe. But then when they were showing the disaster shots, which is like the staple of a lot of disaster movies, like you you got to show what the Statue of Liberty yeah, yeah. destroyed, uh, Golden Gate Bridge has to be destroyed. Uh, Eiffel, <laughs> Eiffel Tower has to be destroyed. Probably the pyramids and the Sphinx. They yeah, had the to, pyramids got a chunk out of it. They had to take it down. Um, they did those kind of action, like those disaster glory shots. But then, like Europe, didn't seem like it was in too bad a shape. Like you could still make Europe out the gone. Eiffel Tower. It was a crater. No, they were showing like the Eiffel Tower was still like you could make it out. There were still oh, buildings really? and stuff in Europe. I have to go back and rewatch some of it. I remember when they were zooming out, like showing the whole globe, and there was a huge crater where Europe basically was. I thought it was like Australia or something they were showing at some point. I could be um, completely wrong. Um, I highly doubt it, though. But <laughs> <laughs> I love the confidence. It's good. <laughs> no, it's it's entirely it's entirely possible. I'm wrong, but I, I I seem to remember there was some kind of iconic European landmark they were showing. I'm like, or like there were still buildings being standing. They're crumbled, but there were still there. like how? Well, that was the surprising part. There were still buildings everywhere, and you're you're looking at this, and you're like. Man, we could roll right into some post-apocalyptic movie now. Like this is this is a perfect setup. Now it's Mad Max, baby. A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> Which now that I'm thinking about it, I think Gerard Butler would be great in a Mad Max film. Oh my god, yeah, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> but yeah, overall, so I think we went through. So some of the stuff that I really liked was obviously the the human connection, the human element, the human point of view, where it's telling a very, it's telling this big global disaster story but bring it down to a personal level obviously the acting was great um the two leads gerard butler and marina bacharin are mm-hmm. great as as always they're these are really reliable um a-list act i i consider them a-list i don't know if if hollywood does but i would i would have them in my movie if i were making a movie for sure 100 yeah, percent. yeah <laughs> um obviously the special effects were good the story the plotting was was good on the on the other side like i a few things that were lacking. I think the ending was kind of, they got into like mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings syndrome with the ending, but they didn't quite know yeah. where to end it. Like you said, a couple of the plot points were maybe a, a bit of a stretch. Like even like, I know it works in the movie, but like the odds of like being separated from your kid and then finding them again in, in that kind of situation. Yeah. Like that, I, I think to me was a little bit stretching the, suspension of disbelief didn't quite snap it but there were some no the movie were, sold it well yeah it sold it well there were a couple of plot points that that were kind of iffy like i think you pointed out but i was able to kind of i was willing to accept that because the rest of the movie was, was so good um yeah. i wish we would have gotten maybe just a little bit more um backstory with the family before things started yeah maybe a little bit more interaction with with the neighborhood a little bit more mm-hmm. um with his with his at his job just to show like why he was chosen out of like hundreds of thousands there's like probably tens of thousands of civil engineers out there so maybe a little bit to show like why was this guy selected yeah that's a really good point because when you're the very first scene is is basically him working on site i really don't know what he's doing he could be a site supervisor i don't know that he's a civil engineer or architect until after i read about it so he, they're basically the movie showing us that he's working late and his his buddies are saying you should go home you know and of course that's a hint at his home life is not that great right now but they they definitely could have spent more time and really amped up that that scene so yeah the the 
the the family and the neighbors are having a barbecue when they really that's where they get the notification on the phone saying you know you've been chosen and it comes up on the guy's tv to yeah. show all his neighbors and it's like if we had more connection with the neighbors to show that they are betrayed but they maybe they also kind of understand the panic that sets in it would have been more impactful yeah i'm not saying we need a whole um 30 minutes or something in there but just like a couple minutes here and there just to flesh out the characters and the relationships just a tiny bit more yeah. and just to show like why is this guy why is Gerard Butler going to be the one who leads yep. the new human race? Do they mention lottery at some point where it is kind of a, a bit of a lottery? And it's like, no. oh, if, if he's a civil engineer, maybe there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of them. And he got a lottery of, of however many. Smartly, it doesn't go, the movie doesn't go too in depth into the structure. It just tells you the basics of, okay, there's, there's a disaster coming and we're, obviously trying to get people to rebuild a society afterwards. People are going to be most essential, but it doesn't say whether he was selected specifically or whether it was by lottery. You're correct. Yeah. But I, I was, I think we're operating on different assumptions. So maybe that's yeah. why, maybe the movie need to clarify a bit more because that, that's an interesting, it's an interesting scenario, right? And I wish they would have played with that, uh, explore that a bit more where people were like, you know, exploring the, the morality of that. And like, somebody's like, well, why was he chosen? And why was this? And then somebody right. else comes over is like, like honey, you know, like, we have to think about the survival of our race. And like, he has this skill and like, I'm a manager at a grocery store. I, I'm not going to be useful yeah. in the, in the right. Like, no, no disrespect to the grocery store workers. <laughs> and I think it would be interesting too, because the government is doing all this. They're deciding, they don't know how good you are at your job. Really. They know you have a job title. They have that. And they would put you into a pool of everyone with the same job title, expecting you could do similar work and pull a bunch of people out of that that job pool i would think yeah I, I would suspect if i were doing it i would kind of get like have my staff put together essentially resumes on all these people and i would kind of yeah. go through and, and and just have a basic criteria and kind of sort through i mean who knows you could be pulling the the, the jerk on on the construction site that nobody likes or 100 <laughs> percent. but yeah it's it's a risk you have so, to take in that kind of survival situation so that's what the one main thing I really liked about this movie. The positives for me was the perspective. It's always from the family's perspective. We don't get any crazy, uh, you know, high higher up military or government officials. Uh, the newscasts uh, through television or radio were done really well to sort of give the viewer information on what's going on. And as a result, uh, going back to the barbecue scene, with the neighbors is we see the first impact into, I think it was Miami, Florida and the destruction. And that's sort of a, a chance to showcase some special effects, but it doesn't actually transport us over into that area. Other comet strikes are from a far off distance. You know, if our character is on the highway somewhere, we see the sky light up in the distance. Right. And I think that kind of element and the, the, the human drama that goes on here sets this above a lot of other recent disaster films for me. There were a few iffy moments. You know, the initial separation was kind of rough. We talked about the military base at the beginning being overrun. I didn't feel like the crowd was big enough. I didn't feel like... Yeah, that I felt like it kind of happened because I was like, oh, we need an action beat here. Let's uh, have them overrun the base and blow some planes. Yeah, like the he's able to leave through that crowd and come back through that crowd without really much difficulty. And that stuff is fine. I'm, I, the movie didn't have me until probably 20 minutes, 20 or 30 minutes in. And then it really amped it up and I took it a lot more seriously. And I, I saw, like, I appreciated it for what it was and what it was doing. The last half hour of the movie felt like a bit of an add-on, but I think we sort of talked about it where they kept adding on to it a little bit here and there. They had many chances to end it before and I would have been satisfied with either one of them. So really... A pretty solid film. I think it had some competent directing. The special effects were nice. And I wouldn't be surprised if they were able to go back with some added budget to spruce up those special effects. Uh, oh, yeah. But because of the perspective, I don't think they needed a lot of it. A lot of special effects. They didn't have to go above and beyond uh, into, you know, 2012 territory. Yeah. And I'm thankful that they don't. This is almost a low-key disaster film. So it was really solid. And at the end, I, I, was, I was thinking to myself, I would watch this movie again. This movie wasn't a five-star film for me. It wasn't even four stars. But if I'm going to revisit a disaster film, it's probably going to be this one first. What kind of rating do you give this film? Um, I believe I ended up giving it uh, 
three and a half out of five stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's reasonable. Which for me, when I go three and a half, that's above average. Not yeah. not exceptional. Like four stars are getting into like really great and five stars is obviously awesome. But three and a yeah. half is like, this is a movie like if I saw this, I would I would pick it up on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a, another question there. Do you buy this movie? And I typically never buy disaster movies, although it depends on your definition of disaster. I mean, Independence Day, I bought, I don't know how many times, but, you know, for me, that's more of a sci-fi alien invasion. Godzilla is another one where that could be a disaster film, right? The whole series are disaster films. I was going to say, I was surprised you didn't bring up uh, Godzilla. I know you love that series. You know what? I, I'm awful with Godzilla because I loved it when I was a kid. And I have not been keeping on top of my Godzilla. I've watched a couple of new ones like Shin Godzilla, but I have not gone back to the old ones and, and watched them. Although I did purchase the Criterion Collection, which I think has 15 Godzilla films in it. And I really need to get on top of watching that soon. Yeah, you do. So I would give Greenland three, maybe three and a half. I, I gave it three initially, and I think it's probably my own hangups. That would result in that uh, upon rewatch, which would probably happen in a year or two. I could see easily three and a half. So would you recommend um, people check out Greenland, Brian? 100%. Yeah. If you're going to check out anything, any disaster movie right now, then give Greenland a watch and give it a chance. I too would recommend Greenland, both the movie and the location, the country, I guess. Um, I heard it's beautiful up there. If you uh, get a chance up there, <laughs> if you get a chance to go up there, it's on my list. I'm definitely going to check out Greenland. And that concludes the third episode of the Real Film Chronicles podcast. We want to thank everyone for listening. The feedback we've received so far has been really great, and honestly, really appreciate all of you checking the show out. If you want to reach out to us with any comments or suggestions, maybe films to cover, you can email us at realfilmchronicles at outlook.com. Or check out our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash realfilmchronicles. And of course, our website, realfilmchronicles.com. I'm beginning to sense a bit of a pattern there. Until next time, stay safe out there, and we will talk to you soon.